Mark chapter 4 uh, is a bit of a continuation of what we talked about last week, the parable of the sowers, Jesus' interpretation of that parable. Um, and uh, But it continues and expands on that and also brings in a parable, an illustration taken from a lamp. I was teaching a class in, in Mobile years ago. Uh, it was a, a great opportunity to travel down there, good friends at Eastern Shore Presbyterian Church, and they were uh, offering a, a seminary class, was uh, spending time with some people and, and enjoying a, a bit of teaching, and uh, had a member of the class who shared a particular concern. And this particular concern was his daughter. And his daughter was um, dabbling in and really getting pulled into and deceived by a cult. And as he would discuss with his daughter uh, and call this organization a cult, she began to react against that, to reject it and say, oh, dad, that's just a, a label that you put on things to, uh, to, to, to denigrate other, the way other people believe because you only want to believe the way you believe. And he really was bringing to the class the question, how do I talk to my daughter about the difference between a religion, a true faith, and a cult? What's, what's the difference between truth and made-up stories? Well, one of the most convincing points, and I'd love to take credit for this, uh, but I didn't bring it up. Somebody else in the class did. They just made a simple statement. And they said, you know what the difference is the way I see it? Nothing in Christianity is withheld. Nothing in Christianity is withheld. What this other student meant was, that no truth has to wait until you reach a particular level. There is no mystery in terms of, well, you just have to wait until you attain platinum status in Christianity before you can know that. I like the way one pastor uh, describes it. He says that, that there is nothing hidden, there is nothing separated, there is nothing concealed. You don't have to become a particular temple-oriented person in order to reach it. Now, there were in the the day of uh, the Apostle Paul writing, there were throughout the first century, even at the time of Jesus, mystery religions. Mystery religions uh, were those where only the elite were invited to join. You had to go through secret passages. You you would go into hidden places. Uh, They'd go into vaults, and there would be scary initiation ceremonies. And then they'd become a devotee to that particular type of study or the God or idol that they worship, there would be blood-curdling oaths. There would be uh, promises of secrecy. But there's nothing of that in Christianity. Now, when Jesus talks about those who have ears, let them hear. We're going to talk about that today. When he talks about uh, hidden and concealed, what we see is this is not a truth that we would keep from our children as they are brought up in the, in the church. We, we welcome every question. And, and we respond to every request. We, we talk about the word of God from cover to cover. And we never say, oh, you haven't reached that level of Christianity yet. Cults would say there is secret hidden knowledge. A lamp, perhaps. We'll see that in a second. But the cults would say that it's concealed. It's hidden. It's separated. This is how Jesus speaks to us in this message. We pick up reading in verse 21. This is our Savior speaking. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, not in a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, and then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when it's sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Pray with me, Lord, this your word is precious to us because it is your word to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, soft hearts where this seed, this word might sink in deep. We pray in Jesus. Amen. In response to the way I opened this, I do want to speak very quickly to the very last statement that I left you with. Uh, out of God's word, it says that Jesus did not speak without a parable, saying that he would regularly throw the parable alongside to use it to teach. And we're going to talk about, again, the reason for the parables. But it says when privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Again, we need to understand that Jesus was explaining these things to those who asked. It was not that he had to initiate them and bring them to a special point before he could tell them. He gave the answers to those who sincerely sought them. And so we see basically three parables right here. Remember parable, the combination of the two words. It is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning, or it is a story that's cast alongside of a truth. That's what it means, parabolos, to throw alongside. So we, we find that Jesus is using parables to teach. There was a strategic value in those. We touched on this last week with the parable of the sower and the different types of soils. There was a strategic uh, wisdom behind doing this because as Jesus was speaking about the kingdom, talking about the kingdom, there was a great inclination of, of those, particularly of the Jews, looking for the establishment of a Jewish throne in that day a king who would overthrow both the Herodian reign that was there at the time among the Jews, but then also Rome and Caesar, uh, that, that Israel uh, would be reestablished as its own independent kingdom. And there were many who were expecting Jesus to be such an insurrectionist. Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Roman authorities, would have honed in on Jesus uh, speaking plainly about the kingdom, especially if they had any hint that it was in terms of him establishing an earthly kingdom, he would have been arrested, rapidly tried, and put to death even before his time. And so as he spoke, the parables were both strategic, but they were also illustrative. They, they opened the eyes. They, they came in under the radar. They were means by which others would hear and the truth would resonate. And Jesus uses three particular illustrations this morning. He uses a lamp. He uses a seed in general, particularly in the germination phase. And then he uses the mustard seed, that, that small. Well, the first thing we need to see when he brings up the parable of the lamp, 
And he talks about that a, a lamp is not to be hidden under a basket. It's not to be hidden under a bed, uh, but it's to be placed on a stand where it would be useful, where it would be profitable for, for those uh, in its presence. Uh, one thing that we need to see right here is that our faith, our faith gives answers. That's where we begin. Our faith is a rational faith. It gives answers. We need to know that Jesus was was talking about the kingdom in parables, but we need to see one thing's very clear. Whenever the law of God or particularly the need for repentance comes about, Jesus then speaks plainly, straightforward. Now, we think about this. There's a situation where Jesus is once asked a question about the Galileans who had been sacrificed and their blood had been killed and their blood had been mixed in with sacrifices by Pilate. And he was asked a question about them or then about the falling of the tower at Siloam and, and talking about the sins of these people who had undergone such a tragedy. And Jesus, using that opportunity, using that example, he turns to them and very clearly and directly says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Speaking about the need for repentance, the need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, body, strength. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbors yourself. Speaking of the law of God, speaking of repenting and turning to our Heavenly Father. There's, there's no story. The stories come alongside it, but there's no, no parable that's concealing that in any way. It's so very clearly spoken. As I mentioned before, our, our religion is not a religion of concealed facts. Everything that we teach... We, we publish it, we, we distribute it, we proclaim it, we talk about it. There, there should never be a time when a Christian, when asked a question, said, oh, well, I'm, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. <laughs> the only reason that we can't tell somebody is we don't know the answer. And which we honestly say, that's a great question. Perhaps we can pursue it together. It's not a religion of concealed facts, but neither is our faith uh, an enigmatic faith. Now, what I mean by that, it would be that, that, that all of our statements are enigmas, that all of our statements are in and of themselves confusing and nonsensical. We find that in other world religions, such as in, in Hinduism, uh, there's actually a bold proclamation that the gods love obscure but hate the obvious. They love the obscure but hate the obvious. No, that's, that's, that's not true. The obvious, the heavens declare the glory of God. The mountains show forth his handiwork. Only a fool says there is no God. That is obvious. It takes, it, it, it takes deliberate obfuscation to, to conceal these things from ourselves. We have to deliberately delude ourselves to say there is no God. And in the same way to say we don't need a savior when we recognize that we are sinful. It's obvious. The Taoist would say those who know do not speak. And those who speak do not know. I've heard it said that you, know, you should keep your tongue when everyone thinks you're a fool, lest you open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's a statement of truth, not necessarily biblical, but, but I I've certainly have fallen prey to that myself. But when they say those who know do not speak and those who speak do not know, we say bunk. What we say is those who know have an obligation to proclaim. Those who know have received and as Greg quoted before, we, in an act of, of giving this morning in worship, we have received freely. We give truth. We proclaim it. Our faith is a faith that gives answers. It is a lamp. Now, worldly philosophies would 
they, they would boast about an absence of answers. We, we can only watch the news for just a very, very few moments before we see a, a pervasive philosophy which says there are no real and transcendent answers. They're always contingent on how we feel and what we think. It's always based on us. Worldviews that see truth and answers as fluid and pliable. I don't think I have to draw too many illustrations that we would all agree that the world would try to teach us that the truth is not absolute, that the truth is not based on the eternal word of God and on God himself, but it's based on how we feel and the emotion of the situation. We live in a day where even the most basic of answers is... We live in a day where you're filling out a job application. Do you understand that we live in a day where when it says that you state your name, you state your address, and you state whether you're male or female, suddenly that becomes an obscure and difficult question? I say it, we giggle, but there would be those who would so boldly say to, to label yourself as male and female is unduly restrictive. It need not be a binary answer, and it need not be the same answer today as it was yesterday an ultimate denial of the truth and to say, I, I am what I feel like I am. This is absurd. And it really in and of itself hopeless. It's great hopelessness. No answers means no hope. And the reason that so many would say there are no answers, the reason so many would say there is no hope is they would say there is no God. Victor Hugo, the man who authored Hunchback of Notre Dame, Wrote it long before Disney picked it up and made a cartoon out of it, by the way. He was a man who himself, he struggled with the nature of his faith, raised Roman Catholic, uh, became a bit more of a, of, a, of, a, of a questioner along the way, but he gave it great thought. And he saw the absurdity of this, this train of thought, this idea of atheism and the nihilism, that is, that why do we even pursue truth? There is no truth. Just throw it all away. That was a pervasive attitude in his day, too. And he looked at that and he says, that doesn't make sense. And here's what he said. Victor Hugo, uh, a man very gifted in words, he says, all roads are blocked to a philosophy that reduces everything to the word no. To know there is only one answer, and that is yes. Nihilism, it has no substance. There is no such thing as nothingness. And zero does not exist. Everything is something and nothing is nothing. We worship a God who is. Amen? We worship a God who has spoken. We worship a God who has given answers. We worship a God who has lit a lamp. And we need not even go to somebody as gifted in words as Victor Hugo. We can go to somebody as simple as E.E. E. Milne. You know who E.E. E. Milne is? I love it. Winnie the Pooh. Again, wrote it many years before Disney made a cartoon of it. He wrote The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and I love it when he meets Grumpy Rabbit because so many days I can relate to Grumpy Rabbit. Other days I relate to Pooh. I like good honey. But Pooh comes, and he's, he's, seeking out, he's seeking out Rabbit, and he says, is anyone home? And Rabbit says, no. And Pooh says, oh, bother. Isn't anybody here at all? Nobody. To which Pooh declares, on putting in the words of a simple little teddy bear, there must be somebody there because somebody must have said nobody. Our God is a God who says, yes, I am here. He doesn't answer nobody. He answers, I am 
Consider the lamp. This lamp that, that he speaks of here in this passage, it is a lamp of the truth of God. It is a lamp which illuminates the darkness. Now, in the time of Jesus, this would not have been a halogen spotlight. It would not have been the brights that you blind people with as they approach you on the road. It would have been a simple bowl with a piece of cloth laid in it. And that bowl would be filled with oil and it would have a small flame right at the end. And you would set it not under your bed. You would set it not under any type of basket or anything, for that would be dangerous for one thing, but it would completely defeat the purpose of the lamp. The lamp would set there in a, in a prominent place in the house that it would illumine the dark house. Now, I want you to see a bit of great hope and joy in the midst of this. This particular type of lamp, uh, I've seen them recreated and, and seen the, the light that they produce, and it was a particularly dim bit of light. It's not bright, but in the dark of the darkest night, it's a, it's a torch. It's a signal. It's illuminating. The darker the night, the brighter even a little lamp. The goal of our teaching, we see the goal of our teaching is that we would illuminate. The goal of our teaching is illumination, and it is deliberate discipleship, that we would strategically place that lamp in a way that it does provide that light to all who need it. It's not to be hidden under a bed, but it's to be set on a stand. It's to be used that not only would we see, but others would see. And Jesus, Jesus is the one who is that light. It is the light that we bring. The word, which the word made flesh, is our Savior Jesus. The word is that which gives perspective. It gives order. It gives understanding. It is indeed that which when you flip it on, suddenly things make sense. Now, I'm a particularly frugal kind of person. Carol laughs. I'm, I'm tight. I'll squeeze a penny till Abe Lincoln cries. And one of the things that uh, I would do for years and have stopped doing it quite so much, realizing that the savings were not equal to the medical bills, but when I would get up in the middle of the night, I would often uh, go from point A to point B in the house without flipping on lights. I said I was being courteous. I was just actually being miserly. And as I'd walk through the house, I'd, you know, I'd know the rooms. I'd know basically where I'm going. But what I didn't know were Legos, where they were. I, I didn't know uh, where, the, um, uh, where my shoes that I had failed to put in my closet, where I had left them, and would stumble. And, and it was such a simple thing to navigate that room, but how hard it was to navigate it in the darkness. And just a simple light. And one of the, the most sterling examples I see now of, of, of what is it's very funny. When you get up in the middle of the night and you don't want to flip on all your lights, what do so many of us do in order to see through the house? What do you do? Night light, but what do you, what, what, what do you use? Cell phone. Exactly. You know, and all you do is you just push it with that dim glow of just that, the, of the, the face of your cell phone is just enough to avoid those nasty, wretched torture implements, those Legos left lying on the floor. Right? You can navigate, you can see that dim light illumines and it deliberately guides us to where we need to go. This is what we use God's word for, is that we would know the path that's set forth, And we say that, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our path. Something we need to take note here, too, is that Jesus is, is using this as a means of teaching, isn't he? He's teaching us through this parable. He's teaching us in his word. And, and Jesus had a very particular message. And this is a little aside I want to, to throw in the midst of this as he's teaching uh, that Jesus's teaching method uh, was threefold. And I believe that we could learn from that, that he would state the truth, that he would illustrate the truth, and that he would apply the truth. 
He would state the truth, he would illustrate the truth, and he would apply the truth. I think this idea speaking about uh, the lamp is a, a vivid uh, illustration of the truth that we've been given. And then he then gives that direct instruction there. Pay attention to what you hear. And he also says, the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you and still more be added, talking about that this has been gifted to us, it's been given to us, we have received this. This is not something that we invented, neither is it something that we have figured out for ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of our own endeavor. Jesus would teach the truth, he would state it, he would illustrate it, and he would apply it. We find this to be very consistent with what we know about faith. Faith itself is is based on knowing who Jesus is, right? There's a knowledge component to having true saving faith. We need to know the truth of our sinfulness. We need to know uh, that God has given at the right time a Redeemer, the only Redeemer, our Jesus. But it's more than just knowledge. It's believing that the knowledge is true. It's assent to that truth saying, yes, this this is what the Bible says, and I do believe it. Now, that seems like that would be enough to know the truth and to believe it to be true, Uh, But James says even the demons believe and they tremble, so obviously it's not enough for salvation. And so we see in this whole idea of stating, illustrating, and applying uh, that that application is so very necessary that it becomes the truth upon which we live, that it would be that truth upon which we function day in and day out, that we not only know it, we not only believe it, but we trust in it. And this is the way Jesus taught, the way he pressed us, the way he illumines before us. And as I said, this understanding is a gift from God. We talked a little bit in Sunday about the arrogance of spirit. Just a, a passing comment by Bruce, but I was paying attention when I wasn't arguing with him. Not arguing, not arguing, reinforcing. That arrogance of spiritual truth, that idea that we sometimes get that little nugget, that little idea, that little notion of some spiritual insight, and we use that as a, as a means to, uh, to, to puff ourselves up. To, to make ourselves look and appear. Pastors fall very prone to that. And if it's not a particular spiritual truth, it's every now and then throwing in some Greek or And if you can't make a point, if you don't have a strong, valid argument, a little Greek and Hebrew is a way to uh, convince anybody. An under simple understanding of God's word is a gift from God. Verse 25, we see that, right? Verse 25, it says, For to the one who has more will be given will be given. This understanding is a gift from the Holy Spirit, a gift given in love. It cannot be the basis of prideful arrogance. And we also see in in verse 34, verse 34, as I mentioned before, uh, that it was Jesus, and we do see today that it is the Spirit that gives us understanding as we ask. When we read God's Word, when we find portions of God's Word that are difficult, we pray for insight, we pray for discernment, and sometimes God answers that prayer by sending us to other teachers, to other believers, uh, that we might grow and learn from them as the Spirit has given them uh, illumination. It's a gift. It cannot be a source of pride. So we see that it is uh, Jesus speaks about uh, the work of the lamp of the Word of God, people. He then turns back to the illustration of the farmer, back to the illustration of the seed. Uh, We see a parable very similar to last week's, but we need to see that as he's speaking just specifically about the seed, he's speaking about that seed as it has entered into the ground. And it's an amazing thing. And the way that he he speaks about it, we need to to understand that, that he explains that there is life, that there is power and there is multiplication in that seed. 
There's life, there's power, and there's multiplication in that seed. You need to understand that everything that will come about in the harvest is there in that seed, right? Everything that will be has been determined by what's in that seed. That seed, the word, it's life. If we go way back into Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the Old Testament, Moses is speaking to the people of God. And as he's talking to the people of God, he says, this is no empty word for you, but it's your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. He says, these are not empty words. This is not meaningless talk. This is indeed life. So we see that there's life in the word, that it is eternal life that's in the balance. And as we proclaim the truth of God, we, we need to see that, that there are the stakes that we're dealing with, that we ought not deal with it flippantly, that we ought not deal with it in a careless way, that we present it in a way as a dying man, a dying woman to a dying world. We present the word of God simply, straightforward and lovingly, for there is in it life. The seed is a very apt picture, isn't it? I love, I've got, I've got a stack of seeds. I'm just eager for the, uh, for the, uh, the pecan trees to blossom. That's what all the farmers say. That's when you get to actually start planting, right? And they're still waiting. Apparently we're going to get another frost, but, but you're going to be hearing these illustrations for me as I wait to see, uh, the great harvest or the moderate harvest or the minimum harvest. I don't know what I'll get, but I've got seeds sitting in my home right now. And it's amazing just to look at them and to think about the potential that's in that. But not simply about all the life that will come from it, but we need to also think about the idea of, of seeds and of growth. One of the most fascinating things is to watch how powerfully they grow. I think about my yard. Certainly grass seeds and all that sort of thing germinate and they come up with... But you know, where some of the most, the most vibrant, the most luscious grass in all of my property ends up being? Forcing its way up through the cracks in my driveway. Right? It, it comes up, it pushes its way up through the mulch and the weed barrier and, and the flower bed, right? That, that is powerful, it's amazing. And I've seen while hiking and out in the woods where you see a tree that's grown up and split a rock, a great boulder, that concrete and rocks and boulders cannot resist that slow, steady, powerful growth. It's amazing. And then what is fabulous beyond that is as you read about people as they, they get into gardening and as they get into harvesting is that idea that you take one seed, maybe corn, and it grows into the stalk. And on that stalk are many years and on each year are many seeds, right? And those seeds can be used then to create more and more and more. So when Jesus uses this illustration of a seed, it's an amazing thing to think about that that seed that you've been given, that you plant, that you scatter liberally. Indeed, God would be pleased to use that to multiply the impact of your work, the simple act. There's multiplication and reproduction. The seed yields plants, in turn yields seeds. But what about the sower? That's who we are, by the way, right? We're, we're the sowers. We're, we're not the seed. Uh, we are, in the previous illustration, really the soil that, that the Holy Spirit plants that in us and others sow it in our lives. But, but we also see that we are the sower. And what's required of the sower is it should be faith. We have to have the seed to sow the seed, right? We need to ask ourselves that question, do I truly believe? Do I believe? And Lord, help me in my unbelief. So faith is required and so is faithfulness. Faithfulness, the work of the sower is to sow the seed. And then what does he do? You see it right in this passage. I love it. It says that he sows the seed on the ground and then he does what? He sleeps. Now, this is not 
uh, admonition to laziness, but it's saying that as we close our eyes and open them again, God has not stopped being. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. It's God who gives the increase. We water, we plant, but God makes it to grow. Martin Luther, when asked about the work that he had done for the kingdom, he said, I simply taught, I preached, and I wrote God's word, but other than that, I did nothing. And this growing plant that we see, is, it's a picture of our sanctification, friends. It's, it's a picture of the kingdom, and the kingdom has grown, and it is great, but it's also a picture of our, our sanctification. That idea that so much takes place under the surface. So much takes place before we ever see it. And we grow impatient, don't we? We grow impatient. We do it in gardening. We plant a seed, and we go out every day to see if it's peeking out yet, to see if it's coming through yet. And so much happens before then it germinates and the roots go down and the sprout begins to work its way up to the surface. And the same thing as we do ministry and we can get frustrated, but the Lord says, stay the course, be patient, continue to sow, continue to water, continue to be that laborer in the field for the harvest will be great. And there will come a day, there will come a day when the fruit will be born and God be praised that he calls it all in. And he presses us to, to one One last parable. One last parable as we close, and that's the parable of that mustard seed, that tiny little seed. This past Thursday night, we had the abiders up here. The abiders, by the way, is a sweet time, uh, great dinner, good food. Um, And one of the things that we looked at was a passage out of Zechariah. In Zechariah uh, chapter 4, it speaks about the issue of small things. In Zechariah chapter 4, it talks about Uh, the reconstruction of the temple, and the foundation had just been laid. And in the laying of the foundation, there were people who were really, really upset. They they saw, they, they didn't see what they were expecting. It was small, and they wept. Zechariah, the angel speaks to him and says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit accomplished. Verse 10 in chapter 4 continues, it says, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That day of small things, the planting of that small and tiny seed. We need to rejoice in that. We can become frustrated and think, I don't have that much to offer, but understand that God is pleased to work in the small things, in the, in the loaves of bread and the fish to feed the multitude, and David on the battlefield against mighty Goliath, and the Israelites around the, the, the mighty gates of Jericho, in the small actions of faithfulness, God is pleased to work. He doesn't need those, but he he blesses those and he uses those. God is pleased to work in the small things and to bring about great results. And here he talks about the kingdom of God. And he doesn't speak about terms of legions of soldiers. He doesn't talk about horses and chariots and swords and spears. He talks about the seed. And brothers and sisters, the seed is good. And the seed, though it seems small, will grow into great and mighty things. When you proclaim God's word, as God's word. Sometimes in our lack of faith, we think that's not enough. I must add to it. I must augment it. I must add power to the word of God. That's like adding fierceness to a lion, adding power to the lightning bolt. It, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. Matter of fact, it distracts and it misleads that we would claim the credit, that we would get the praise for what took place. But it is the word of God and we sow it and know that it does Accomplish the goals that God intends. Jesus, who's speaking right there, sitting in that boat, imagine that moment and what has come from it. To live in a day of billions of Christians 
not just of today, but throughout history. So many who have called upon the name of the Lord through that small group of disciples listening, that seed that is planted. Do you believe this? Do you believe this to be true? Evidence suggests that the church has a hard time believing that God works in just the simple proclamation of his truth. The church is constantly seeking a silver bullet, a silver bullet that's going to bring about guaranteed church success. Technology, programs, systems, all these sorts of things. Now, technology can help, but technology is a tool. Gutenberg and his press, that was high technology in the day. And there's undeniably been great impact by it, but it's because it has been used to propagate the seed. It's a tool. We water, we fertilize, we make sure the soil is right, we make sure there's unobstructed light, but something has to be there, right? Isn't that right? What's, what's missing? We say there's, there's soil, there's water, there's fertilizer, we take care of the pests, we make sure the sunlight can get through. Will anything grow at that point? You have to have the seed. It has to be the word. All will fail if the seed is not. But in the planting of the seed, God is faithful and he is good and he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or imagine. Go forth and sow liberally all over and trust the Lord for the harvest. Pray with me. Lord Almighty, we thank you for your word and we confess, our Father, that, that we struggle. We, we, we struggle with wanting to, to add our innovation, add our energy, add our power to, to that which is eternal and will not wither or fade. Father, how foolish is that endeavor. And Father, we pray that you would bless us as we go forth. Lord, use our small talents. Use our, uh, Father, our simple and straightforward proclamation of your word to accomplish amazing things. And Lord, may we rejoice in that. And may it be with amazing. Father, we thank you that we have the answers that have been given to us by your word. And may we in love make them known to all who will hear. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.